scripture reading this morning is Mark chapter 16. Mark chapter 16. Word of the Lord reads as follows. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe. And they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they lay him? But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now when he rose early on the first day of the week, he first appeared to Mary Magdalene, whom he had cast out of seven demons. He went, she went and told those who had been with him and they, as they mourned and wept. But, they, <laughs> but when they heard they did, that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. After these things, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country. And they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. Afterwards, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table. And he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick, and they will recover. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them Confirm the message by accompanying signs. Amen. If you were here a couple of weeks ago, you will remember where we left off. Mark records for us the, the hinge on which Christianity rests, namely the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, they, they go to the tomb to care for the body of Jesus. When they arrive, they don't find Jesus there, but they find an angel. And as we learned, as Pastor Tony explained those texts to us, as we learned that, as the text describes, what the angel shared with them first caused some confusion. That confusion led to fear. 
But eventually that fear gave way to joy. For the woman standing there in Palestine that morning, that first Easter morning, were about to witness the resurrection of their Lord. I think about these ladies standing there at the tomb, and especially Mary Magdalene, as I, as I think about what is going through their mind, I can't even imagine what, what is going through her mind. Fear. I mean, confusion. Ex- excitement. There, there in that graveyard, she must have been overwhelmed. How am I going to tell the disciples of of what has happened? There in that graveyard, though, tells us, John actually tells us, that Jesus appears. Who Mary at first, who Mary at first mistakes as a gardener. And in the midst of her tears, and in the midst of Confusion and fear, Jesus reveals himself to Mary. And she is the first to behold the risen Lord. This must have been joyous. Oh, what joy would have flooded uh, Mary's emotions. This is what Matthew, in Matthew 28, tells us. He says that she was not only afraid, but she was filled with joy. In fact, he says it was great joy that she was filled with. She knew that, that that the risen Christ standing before her was going to change everything. Everything. And here, here is where we then see what Jesus first gives. He gives to Mary Magdalene a reward. I know Pastor Tony touched on this a couple of times when he was talking about the faithfulness of the women. And I want to jump on that same bandwagon because we do see that here. I must call attention to the woman and their faithfulness. All throughout Mark, we see the women and their faithfulness. And Mark often contrasts the faithfulness and the belief of the women against the unbelief and the faithlessness of the disciples, the men that we see in Mark. And we see this characteristic in many women throughout Scripture, but perhaps none more so then Mary Magdalene. We are first introduced to Mary Magdalene in Luke chapter 8. And it's, and it's almost in a passing reference type of way that we're introduced to her. It says this in Luke 8. Soon afterward, he went on through the cities and the villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chizza, Herod's household manager, and Susanna and many others who provided for them out of their means. That's where we're first introduced to Mary Magdalene. We don't know much about her encounter before, And we don't know much about her encounter of Jesus after. 
her name appears here in Luke chapter 8. And we don't hear about Mary Magdalene again until she is brought up at the foot of the cross. Where she is there faithfully beholding her suffering Lord. Tending to his broken and bruised body. You say, that's right. I mean, that's, that's not a lot. We don't know a lot about Mary. And so, so what can we glean from Mary Magdalene? Why is she here? Why is she the first one to behold the risen Lord? Why is she at the tomb this morning? I don't, I don't know except to say that it was according to the sovereign and good and according to his pleasure, the goodwill pleasure of the Lord to do so. And because he thought he might bring maxi, because it was going to bring him the maximum glory, we can say that for sure. There's, there's one other thing that I'd like to appeal to that I think that we can make an argument for. Mary is there first beholding the risen Lord because of her faithfulness. Mary was being rewarded for her faithfulness. Brothers and sisters, I don't know how much you contemplate the idea of faithfulness, but I want to exhort you this morning to think a great deal about faithfulness because the Bible has a lot to say about faithfulness. When it speaks about faithful men, you need to stop and take notice. What is, what is faithfulness? What is faithfulness? Faithfulness is an unwavering, fully devoted, trust-abiding, following-after commitment to Jesus Christ. In other words, faithfulness should be synonymous with discipleship. Because to be faithful is to follow Christ. (laughs) And that's what Mary Magdalene did. That's what she did. She followed Christ. I think what the gospel writers say about Mary Magdalene is so instructive for us. You say, but they, but they didn't say much about her. That's exactly it, brothers and sisters. That's exactly it. Faithfulness isn't headline grabbing for us. It's not church planting. It's not traveling all over the world to share the gospel. It's not keeping a blog or writing a book. It's not standing in front of thousands to proclaim the word of God. Faithfulness flies under the radar. Barely noticeable to us, but to God, it is huge. God sees it. He sees faithfulness. He acknowledges it, and he rewards faithfulness. God rewards faithfulness. Proverbs 28 and 20 says this, A faithful man man will abound with blessings. 
But whoever hastens to be rich will not go unpunished. The angel of the Lord, when it comes to the church at Smyrna in Revelations 2 and 10, it says this, do not fear what you are about to suffer. They, they were about to suffer persecution and he was warning them and he says, do not fear. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. The Lord, the Lord blesses, the Lord rewards those who are faithful. Brothers and sisters, not everyone, not everyone can plant a church. Not everyone will be able to stand on a street corner and proclaim the glories of Calvary and that there would be those that would fall down on their knees in faith and repentance. Not many of us will be able to do that. I can, I can imagine not many of us in here will take the gospel to unreached people groups. But everyone in here, Every single one of you in here, I can look you in the eye and tell you, you can be faithful. You can be faithful. You follow after Christ and you follow his commands. You are being faithful. Brothers and sisters, faithfulness is not measured in the big things. It's not measured in the big things. It's measured. It's measured in the little things, the small things. As one writer puts it, it is a long obedience in the same direction. Christ commands us to follow. He entrusts us with the riches that are in him. And he says, be faithful. Paul says, that's what's required of us. It is required of stewards, those who have been trusted with the riches of Christ, those who have been entrusted with the gospel, those who have been entrusted with his words, that they may be found faithful. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4 and 2. This is, may not seem exciting in the world's eyes, but you are being faithful and God will reward you. That's, that's what he says in Matthew 25 and 21. When Jesus says, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little, telling of the parable. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. God is delighted. He is pleased to reward faithfulness. And here is Mary Magdalene being rewarded for her faithfulness. She followed Jesus all the way to the cross. She was there all along the way, trusting in her Savior. She's there on the morning, first morning, Easter morning. She is there trusting her Savior, and she is being rewarded by beholding the risen Lamb, the first one to see him. But not only that, not only that, she is rewarded with something else. When, 
When I say reward, many of you may uh, immediately go to a monetary award, reward. Something uh, materialistic, uh, 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 a job or, 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 or money or, or fame or something of that nature. Have you ever thought, have you ever thought that your reward for faithfulness may come in the form of service? It may come in the form of service. Not only is Mary Magdalene the first to, 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 to witness the risen Lord, she is the first to testify about him. She is the first. Mary is employed into the service of the kingdom. The, the Bible says that Jesus tells her to go tell the disciples. Go tell them. She is employed in the service of the king. Her faithfulness proved that she could be trusted in service, in service to the king. Oh, brothers and sisters, the, the Bible talks a great deal about faithfulness. Think about Tychicus and, and, um, and Onesimus in Colossians. In Colossians chapter 4, Paul calls them faithful servants fellow workers in the gospel. And he says, it is because of this reason that I can send them to the saints at Colossae so that, they, so that he can encourage you. There's the faithfulness, the reward for being faithful was service in the kingdom. We don't, we don't often think in those terms. But service in the kingdom is indeed a reward. Mary was rewarded. She got to see the risen Savior first and proclaim his resurrection to the disciples. Not only do we see Jesus giving a reward, but then we see him give a rebuke. For Mary, her encounter with the risen Lord had changed everything. But for some, things had not yet changed. Namely, the disciples. Let's return to the accounts reported. Mary, being obedient to her Lord, heads to the house or the bunker where the disciples are holed up. These, these disciples are they're, they're devastated. They're devastated. Their, their entire world has been turned upside down. The one whom they had confessed as the Christ, the one whom they had served alongside of, has been crucified. They had, they had grand visions of a kingdom in which Israel would, would once again dominate and all the other nations of the world would fear them. Jesus would be their king and the disciples, all of them, they would be his high-ranking officials. Well, now here they were in fear of their life, distraught, anticipating that they would be the next one to, to succumb to the same death that their Lord had succumbed to. They had 
left jobs and family to follow this, to follow Jesus. And this is, this is not how they envisioned it happening. This is not how they thought it would end. And as they are there together, mourning and weeping and trying to figure out what they are going to do, I can imagine Mary bursting into the room. He's alive. Jesus, he, he's alive. I, I saw him. I saw him with my, my own eyes. I saw Jesus. He is alive. proclamations seem to fall on deaf ears. The Bible tells us that the disciples did not believe her. Luke says that they thought it was an idle tale. They thought it to be an idle tale that Mary was telling. You might say, well, it was because she was a woman, right? It is true that in the culture at the time, a woman's testimony was not valued, that a woman's testimony would not hold up in a court of law. So you would think that that's the reason why they don't believe Mary. But upon further examination, we see that this was not the only issue, because shortly after, the two men come and testify to the same fact, that they too had seen the risen Lord. But the disciples don't believe them either. That was the case with the disciples, wasn't it? Isn't that always the case as we have been studying throughout Mark? Their issue has always been unbelief. Right in the storm, when they go to wake up Jesus, what's the issue? They don't believe. They lack faith in the Savior. And here, After the resurrection, we see the sin of unbelief once again rearing its ugly head, and the disciples are confront as the disciples are confronted with this truth. They don't believe Mary, and they don't believe the two men on the road to Emmaus whom Jesus had appeared to. The Bible tells us that Jesus himself comes to the disciples. Now, you would think that this would be a joyous occasion, right? There'd be hugs and and crying and, and a celebration going on, but this is not the case. This reunion is tempered with a rebuke. Jesus rebukes the disciples for their unbelief. Listen, he does not rebuke rebuke the disciples because they did not believe Mary or the two men who, are, who Jesus appeared to on the road to Emmaus. He rebukes them because they do not believe in him. They do not, they do not believe him. Mary and the others were simply, they were simply messengers of the truth, testifying to the truth of the word. Jesus told them to tell them. Jesus had not only told the disciples this, that he would raise from the dead, But he says, this is what has been promised in scriptures. This is what is in the word of God. This was according to the plan that the scriptures had spoken of. Mary and the others don't come to the disciples making this up. They don't come uh, telling a a lie on their own. This, This is not something that they had made up. Jesus rebuked them because they did not believe him. 
Brothers and sisters, unbelief plagues us all. It plagues us all. It is the reason why we sin. We don't believe. We don't believe when Jesus says that we are free from sin. Or he is sufficient or really about our good. We don't believe the gospel is good enough for us. It is unbelief that causes us to doubt the life-altering implications of the resurrection. It's unbelief. All of this plagued the disciples. All of this. And Jesus rebukes their unbelief because it's sin. And Jesus came so that we, so that the disciples would be free from sin. Free from unbelief. This is why he came. It's important for you to understand. It's important for you to understand that when, that you are not going to be held accountable for not believing what I say. You are going to be held accountable for not believing Christ. Truth of the word that that you hear coming from anyone, whether it be a brother and a sister in Christ, whether it be a preacher, if they are bringing to you the word of God, if they are bringing to you the promises and the truths of the word and you harden your heart and you do not believe, your unbelief is not against them. It is against Christ and you will be held accountable for that. Your unbelief is against Christ. And so the disciples are rebuked here because because they don't believe Jesus and what he had said. But here's the glorious thing. Here is the glorious thing. Luke fills in the gaps for us. The rebuke is followed by a comfort. It's followed by comfort. Luke's gospel, in Luke's gospel, we learn and we're reminded that unbelief is why Jesus came. It is what sent him to the cross to die. And this is what he says in Luke 24, 45 to 47. He says this. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. This is what Christ had gone to the cross to do. The gospel changes everything. Sin has been forgiven despite the disciples' faithlessness. Despite our faithlessness, Christ has always and will always remain faithful. That's the comfort the disciples receive. That Christ had gone to the cross, paying the penalty for their unbelief. So that they too now, that they now could believe upon the Christ 
the Savior, the resurrected Lord. Their unbelief through the power of the through the resurrection is transformed into belief as they see the resurrected Christ. Not only do they see him with their eyes, but they they see the, the scars in his hands. And they're able to touch him and they they have a meal with him. This once distraught, devastated group of unbelieving men now understand the life-altering implications of the gospel. It all becomes clear. All the time that they have been walking with Jesus is now becoming clear to Peter. Peter now remembers the time that the Lord calls him. And he says that you are going to be fishers of men. It now makes sense as Jesus gives them a mission. He gives a reward. He gives a rebuke and comforts them. But then he gives them a mission. It is what we refer to as the Great Commission. We commonly see it in Matthew 28. It is where the disciples... And not just these first disciples, but it is giving to all disciples. All disciples are given this task. And this is not just a suggestion. This is a command. Matthew 28 and 19, beginning in verse 18, says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Wow. That is an enormous task. That is a serious mission. Were the disciples qualified? Had they proven themselves worthy of such a mission? These are the same men who just demonstrated unbelief, who had fled Jesus' side when the pressure, when suffering was beginning to mount These same men are given this task. These were fishermen and and tax collectors, men who were about to be faced with the accusation that they stole the body of Jesus. Were they they prepared for this mission? Are these men ready for this task? Are you? Are you? This command, this commission comes to us as well. And so when you read the Great Commission, do you immediately make excuses? Oh, that's just for pastors and evangelists. That's just for those who are called to the mission field. Oh, I don't know enough. Oh, you don't know what I did. You don't know about my past. Are you making the same excuses? Are you called to this task? Are 
Paul in 1 Corinthians 26 says this, for consider your calling brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing, things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification, redemption, so that it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Those not wise, he's talking about us. That's what he's talking about. We're the ones that aren't wise. We are the ones that are foolish in this world. He chose the things that are foolish so that he might be made big. So we might glorify and honor him so that we would point people to say and say, he, we boast in Christ and in him alone. Brothers and sisters, did I mention that the resurrection changes everything? Did for the disciples and it does for us. We proclaim the gospel with confidence because we know that Christ is not in the grave. If he's still in the grave, our going and proclaiming are in vain. But we know that it is fact that Jesus Christ of Nazareth was crucified on a Roman cross, sealed in a Jewish temple. But he rose again three days later, freeing sinners from the pangs of sin and of death, satisfying, completely satisfying the wrath of God against condemned guilty sinners like you and like me. Oh, brothers and sisters, that is news worth telling. This command, it begs a question. It begs question. The command begs, begs questions. Where are we to go? Who are we to tell? Well, the text is clear. You are to go into all the world. Well, where is all the world? All the world. Everywhere. You're to go to the mortar station in East Point. Five points, right, guys? Five points you're to go to. You're to go to your neighbor, to the person next to you in your cubicle. You're to go to everywhere, all the world, proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel. Well, who are we to go to? Who are we to tell? All of creation, everyone. We don't discriminate. The gospel goes out freely to those. We proclaim it to everyone. And here, here is Christ reminding the disciples that he did not just die for the Jews, but he died for the Gentiles as well, we are not to discriminate in terms of who we are to share the gospel with. It is the only, listen, it is the only necessary, it is the only necessary news people need to hear. And so we proclaim it to all. We proclaim it to all, imploring them, imploring them to believe on the Christ, imploring them to believe the gospel. 
And if they believe, they receive the covenant sign of baptism. And if they don't believe, they are warned. They are warned of the wrath of God against unbelieving sinners. That's what we do. You say, you say, what? This is so, this is such a huge task. Who is sufficient for these things? Paul asked that same question. The apostle Paul asked that same question. In 2 Corinthians 2, he says, For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those whom are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To those who disbelieve, who don't believe on Christ, it is aroma from death to death. But those, to others, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things. That's what Paul says. He asked that question, but he answers it. And he answers us. He says, for we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. We speak in Christ. That's That's just it. We are commissioned by God and we go with his authority. We go as Mark 16, 20 says, used by the Lord. We go with his authority. And so, in light of this truth, we come to the issue of the signs that we read about in verse 17. And 18. This is what you guys have really been waiting for. What is he going to do with the snake handling and the poison and everything? All these signs that we're reading about. What is the writer speaking about here? Are these signs that we are supposed to be looking for as we go out and proclaim the gospel? Is, is, this, what, is this what we're supposed to be looking for? Well, let's look at what this text is not saying. Just this year, 2012, maybe about two or three months ago, there was a pastor in West Virginia. And he was having a, what he called, and advertised as an old school revival. There were going to be signs and wonders performed. And appealing to Mark 16 and verse 17 and 18, he brought a rattlesnake to the party and was bitten by the rattlesnake. The outcome was that the pastor, unfortunately and tragically, died. So, before you go and set up a tent in the middle of a field, get rattlesnakes and Start charging money because you're going to heal people and, and perform all these miraculous wonders and signs. Understand that this is not what that text is saying. This is not prescriptive. Understand that this does not mean that we are going, we're supposed to be going around looking for these signs and seeking to perform them ourselves. This is not what the Bible is saying here. 
We, we know that because this pastor was bitten by a snake and he died, appealing to Mark 16. So, what does it mean? What does it mean? Well, the signs that we see here do accompany the apostles as they are obedient to the Great Commission. And specifically, we see these signs exercised in Acts. We see the casting out of demons in Acts 19 and 11. Where it says that Paul was there and God was doing many things through Paul and even handkerchiefs and people would touch the handkerchiefs and they would, the, the demons would be cast out and they would be healed. Speaking in new tongues, we see that in Acts 2, right? At Pentecost, when uh, the Holy Spirit fell on the disciples and they began to speak in tongues and, 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 and the Holy Spirit gave them utterance and other people from other languages understood the disciples. Healing of the sick, see that in Acts 5 and 16, where there were those where the disciples were coming to the disciples and the disciples were healing them, healing the sick. The picking up of snakes. We see in Acts 28 that Paul on the island of Malta, as he is preparing a fire, there is a a viper in a bush that comes out and bites Paul on the hand. And he doesn't die. He wasn't picking up the snake. There's a snake bit him. But we, we see these signs. But here is what Christ is doing. He is giving us the confidence of his authority. As we go into the world preaching the gospel to all creation, we go knowing that God's purposes are never thwarted. They are never thwarted. At each each time that we see these signs performed in Acts, it's so that the gospel would advance. And so that the gospel would, the kingdom of God would go forth. They were, they were not given, they were given so that God's kingdom would be advanced. Not so that people can say, ooh and ah, look at them, he picked up a rattlesnake. Look at them, they, they healed the sick. It's not so that people can ooh and ah. It's for the advancement of the kingdom. We go with the authority of Christ. That trusting, trusting that the work he has called us to will be accomplished. And should we encounter resistance in any way or form, Christ not only has the power, but he has the authority to protect us from harm and to use us to accomplish extraordinary means so that the gospel can advance. And guess what? God does it where he wants to do it and when he wants to do it. It's not according to what we do. He does it according to his plans, to his purposes. He demonstrates his authority, his power, so that his kingdom, his gospel, his truth can be advanced. Brothers and sisters, God gives us a mission to go out into the world, to proclaim the gospel, and he gives us his authority, and he goes with us. What motivation? What other motivation do we need? What, what confidence? What other confidence do we need 
to tell the, the message of the Christ. As I mentioned earlier, we began our study of Mark about a little over a year ago. The title of the sermon series that we have been studying as we've been going through Mark has been called A King's Ransom. We we have followed Mark as he told us about the king who left his throne in heaven. And he came not counting equality with God, something to be grasped, but he humbled himself, showing us the way of the kingdom that he was ushering in. We have seen this king's authority, and we have seen his power on display throughout the gospel of Mark. He is all along the way modeled compassion, mercy, and patience, and service. He had a message. He had a message, repent and believe the gospel. He had a people he was bringing that message to. And as the title of our series states, he came, he was coming to give a ransom, a king's ransom. That king's ransom was himself. It was himself. He came to give his life as a ransom for many, and he did. Christ came and he accomplished the purpose for which he came. He came and bore the sin of a sin-sick people, a dead people. He, He satisfied the justice and the wrath of God against sinners. He accomplished it. He went to the cross, was buried in the tomb, And three days later, he rose again from the grave, putting a stamp on sin and death. And you know what he did next? That king sat down. He sat down at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, where he sits on high, reigning and ruling. Oh, brothers and sisters. That is a king worth serving. That is a king worth giving your life for, all of your life. Because this king called us to a mission to tell of this grand mission that he had. He did it. He did it. He called, he's not calling us to do something that he already has not done. Oh, brothers and sisters, I pray that as we have finished this study of Mark, as we have seen the compassionate, merciful Savior who sacrificed his life, who served, who was compassionate, who hated sin. Oh, that the the love and the mercy that we have seen of Christ throughout the gospel of Mark would indeed compel us to not hold this message to ourselves but to go and to proclaim it to all the world, 
to all of creation, imploring them, pleading with them to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And you go not in your own confidence, but you go knowing that you go with the authority of Christ. You have been commissioned by God. So you just go. Proclaim the gospel. Because it is the only necessary message we need.